The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to the Masogi Method with work happiness expert Jody B. Miller. Each week, Jody interviews amazing people who have broken through huge barriers to achieve meaning, success, and happiness in their lives. For each of us, the path to lasting happiness has always been there, but it may take a Masogi to get you on it. Here's your host, Jody B. Miller. Welcome to the Masogi Method. I'm Jody Miller, your host. In each episode of the Masogi Method, I interview people who have broken through huge barriers in order to achieve meaning, success, and happiness in their lives. But sometimes the barriers they have broken through are not on behalf of themselves at all, but rather in support of others who maybe can't advocate for themselves or need help in order to thrive or sometimes even survive. My guest today does just that on behalf of one of the most mysterious marine animals on our planet, the great white shark. Dr. Yanis Papastamachu is a marine biologist and great white shark explorer. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at Florida International University in Miami, Florida, and his work with sharks has been featured on National Geographic and the BBC. Yanis, welcome. Hi, Jody. Thank you for having me. So glad you could be here. I had to practice saying your name a few times. <laughs> it, it, it's quite a mouthful, and, and uh, after 41 years, I still have a problem pronouncing it. So <laughs> so is, your, is it a Greek name? It is. It is. So I actually am, am, uh, have a Greek father, English mother, but uh, ah. born and raised in London. Okay, and I, I was going to ask you if you were from London. My daughter actually lives in London, and um, I'm never tired of hearing London accents. They're just beautiful. <laughs> yeah, no, I was, I was born and raised in London, but I actually, I, I also spent uh, nearly seven years of my life uh, living in Athens in Greece. So I've moved around a fair bit. Wow, that's, that's fascinating. So, Giannis, I'm just going to jump right into it. Lots of questions. I'm going to jump around, if that's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just start with... With over 60 research publications and years and years of shark research, you have become known as one of the world's leading shark behavioral ecologists. Can you explain to our listeners what behavioral ecologist is and does? Yeah, and it's it's, it's a good question, and and it's, it's hard to give a specific answer, but obviously we study the behavior of animals, but within the context of the environment they live in. So ecology is really understanding the interactions between uh, animals or living organisms and their environments. So in this context, we sort of try to understand the behavior of these animals and what that means for the uh, ecosystems that they reside in. So we'll get into it a little bit later, but sometimes those ecosystems are, they travel a lot. Like, for example, great whites, they travel a lot. So are you looking at each area? that each ecosystem that they live in, or you're looking at different ecosystems around the world that groups of sharks, for example, live in? 
So, I mean, you're absolutely right in that white sharks are, are certainly migratory and can move over quite large areas. So, uh, too many areas for one, one sort of research group to study. So, what you tend to see is that different groups study them in different areas. So, for white sharks, my main uh, area of research is in Mexico, in Guadalupe Island specifically. But then you'll find other research groups working with the white shark aggregations in California, uh, Northern California, Southern California, groups in Australia, South Africa. So again, it's, it's too much for any one research group to do. So we tend to sort of uh, split it up or, or start concentrating on, on uh, certain locations. Yeah, um, I was in the Bay Area. I go back and forth between Santa Barbara and San Francisco now, but for about 25 years. And I've always been fascinated with the Fairlawn Islands and have always sort of secretly wanted to dive in one of those cages and be around great whites. I don't know why. So I want to, I don't know where my desire came from, but when was a time in your life that you first realized you actually wanted to study sharks? You know, I, I actually, I, I pinpointed it to being around about five years old when I, I remember telling my, my mum that I was going to study sharks. And uh, I think there was a few different things that sort of triggered that. One might have been just the fact that uh, growing up in Greece and I spent a lot of time in the ocean uh, and watching, you know, nature shows. But also, I've got to be honest, Jaws. Jaws actually had a very positive influence on me. So that was my next question. How old were you when you saw Jaws? <laughs> yeah, and I, and I can't remember the exact age. Uh, 1975 was the year yeah. it came out. So it came in 75. I was born in 77. My mum probably wouldn't let me watch it initially. I would um, think not. Yeah, but I remember that when I finally did get to see it, that it really did have a, a very uh, positive effect on me. I, I know obviously Jaws is blamed a lot for causing a lot of harm uh, to sharks, which it did. But I look at it from the standpoint of it's a, it's a really great film and I don't blame it for the way that humans responded badly to it. Uh, but for me... Uh, I found it quite inspiring, and particularly the portrayal of the marine biologist in that film. I thought he was he was really cool, and I was like, oh, I, I'd like to do that. Yeah, he was fantastic. Um, so let's just talk about that movie for a second, um, and some kind of some interesting shark facts that I came up with, and I'd love to get your perspective. So I did a little research on, you know, what are the chances of getting bitten by a shark? And so I found a statistic from the International Wildlife Museum that says the chance of being bitten by a shark is one in 3.75 million. And then I looked at the chance of winning the lottery, which is one in 13.9 million. So you, you have more of a chance of getting bit by a shark than winning the lottery. However, your chance of getting struck by lightning in your lifetime is one in 3,000. So you're more likely to get struck by lightning than get bitten by a shark. Yeah, so the, the, the probability of getting bitten by a shark is extremely low. Now, of course, that varies based on where you happen to be in the water and what you're doing in the water. Different activities come with different risks. So it's not that the risk is going to be the same for all places, but regardless of where you're at, it, it, it tends to be very, very low chance of uh, actually getting bitten by a shark. So when you say different different activities, some of the shark attacks that I looked at that were fatal, for example, you know, someone was free diving, someone was surfing, someone was in a kayak. Are there any particular situations where someone's at a greater risk? You know, I mean, activities such as surfing are often uh, considered to have higher risk when that's, that's probably true. Uh, whereas you'd have uh, activities such as scuba diving, for example, come with very low risk uh, of being bitten. It's very rare that you would see uh, 
a strike uh, on a scuba diver. Um, so I think there are definitely uh, differences in certain activities in terms of how likely uh, you may be to get bitten. But again, take into consideration that even for the, let's say, higher risk activities such as surfing, your chance is still very, very low. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so that's just people you should feel a little more comfortable going into the water then. Um, it's interesting, recently down in Santa Barbara, just south of Montecito, there's a uh, road called Santa Claus Lane. It's like on the edge of the beach. And there have been, they call them, I guess, pup sharks or young juvenile sharks, um, great whites. And I've seen them several times about 100 yards offshore and even have several photos of their fins. Do you know the reason why they would just kind of hang out in a certain area close to shore? Well, it's interesting. And in a lot of ways, I think what you're seeing is, is an example of a positive conservation story in that I think there's good evidence that there is an increase in the white shark population off of California. So we've known for a while that uh, you know juvenile white sharks will use these very shallow areas as uh, what we call nursery ground. So the females will actually give birth in shallow areas and the pups or young of the year uh, individuals will stay in those areas for a certain number of years before leaving. More than likely it provides them uh, with some safety or in some cases it may be a place where there's, there's good food, but they like to use these shallow areas close to the beach. But what you're seeing is that you're, you're, you're starting to notice a lot more juvenile white sharks in these areas. And I actually used to live in Southern California. I did my master's degree in, in uh, Long Beach. And so I worked uh, quite a bit along the beaches uh, in the Long Beach area. And in fact, I went up to Santa Barbara as well. And I was there 2000 to 2003. And it was pretty rare that you'd ever see a juvenile white shark. And now you have the situation that you've just described. So they're much more common. And again, I think that what you're starting to see is evidence that the white shark population might be coming back up. Because remember, they've been uh, protected in California waters for quite a while now. since mm-hmm. the mid-90s. So we should start to see the results of that, those sort of protective measures. So when this family was coming out to get a surf lesson and it was a mother, father and two kids, I looked at them and said, are you sure you want to do that? Um, how safe is it with a pup shark in the area? I mean, it, it should be uh, very safe in the sense that those at uh, that size, they're not eating uh, marine mammals. Uh, you know, they're, they're targeting fishes. Uh, and so the chance of having a predatory strike on something as large as a human is very, very low. Because again, that that's just with too large of, a, of an animal for them to attempt to you know, even mistake it as a sort of a prey item. Now saying that, of course, you know, they are still by any standards, a pretty large animal. You're talking about a five foot animal and um, they are capable of inflicting damage. So anytime you get in the water, you just have to accept that there, you know, there is the risk that that could potentially happen. I still think the probability is very low, but obviously as a number of sharks in the water increase, then that probability is going to go up as well. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting because the surf instructor said, don't worry about the, those couple of sharks. They've been here forever. <laughs> so we I mean, just I, like, don't know, <laughs> I don't know how long they've been there. But right. you know, again, I wouldn't be very overly concerned from, from juvenile white sharks. But uh, it, it is something to consider that, again, as the numbers start to increase, then it's just a numbers game that the probability of a bite will, will also go up. Yeah, definitely. So, Giannis, when was the first time you swam with 
a great way, Chuck. I mean, you had this interest at, a, at an extremely young age to, to discover what your passion is at five years old is incredible. But when was the first time you actually got in the water with a great white? For actually, first white sharks I ever saw were in South Africa uh, in the late 90s. And that was uh, up in an area called Hansbai, which is one of the first uh, sites that really sort of developed an ecotourism industry of, of cage diving with white sharks. And so that was the first time I saw white sharks in the wild. Now, the first time I actually have been in the water with them without a cage was actually probably just a few years ago. And that would, again, would have been in Guadalupe in Mexico. And how did that feel compared to being in the cage? It, it's a very different feel. I mean, you make no mistakes about it. It's, it's a very large animal and it is a predator. And you have to be extremely cautious around these animals. And in fact, you know, diving uh, outside the cage in Guadalupe Island is, is illegal. Uh, we had special research permits to be doing it for, for research reasons. Um, but you have to be extremely careful and extremely mindful of the animal you're sharing water with. Um, you can't let your guard down at any point. It's as simple as that. So we have very, very strict safety uh, precautions, but it's an incredible experience. Uh, and at the same time, I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's one that, you know, you're, you're definitely on edge and uh, I'm not going to pretend I wasn't nervous. Right. I, I, I wonder, like, do you, you probably don't turn your back. Yeah, so we, we always, you know, we set ourselves up so that we are, you know, very close to the boat um, and that we have essentially all corners covered. I mean, that's, that's really the, the key with being in the water with large animals like that is you're not as worried about the animal you see. It's the one you don't see. That is the real problem. Uh, you need to make sure that you have uh, all corners and, and then obviously below you covered. Uh, so, and that's why it gets, it's quite exhausting because you just have to constantly, you can't relax. You have to constantly just be like checking those sides, looking below you uh, and just making sure nothing's coming up beneath. Yeah, and I know they, I think they swim, I mean, some research I saw or some stats that they swim up to about 35 miles an hour, yet they can actually turn on a dime. I mean, they're, they're big animals. They're, they're certainly capable of uh, very, you know, fast bursts of speed. Um, and, and they are, they are agile. So you're uh, vastly outmatched in the water. Yeah. One of them. And it's, it's not, it's not a, a competition that you want to really get into. Sure. You and I had communicated before that I know Dr. Rory Wilson, who's the head of aquatic biology at Swansea University in the UK and who invented the tracking device for whale sharks, condors, penguins, African hunting dogs, I think a bunch of other endangered species. And you had mentioned that you knew Rory and that you'd actually had experience with his tag. So maybe we could shift a little bit into how you research, how you track the sharks and what's the process of doing that? Yes, yeah, so I'll say first of all that my, my, early research was more focused on movements of sharks and understanding where they go and when uh, essentially tracking them as you described what rory really pioneered wasn't the ability to track animals he developed devices that would tell you describe their behavior so these uh, include sensors such as accelerometers which basically give you an idea of the activity of the animal and its orientation you have accelerometers in your cell phone for example so when you when you flip the screen of your cell phone, you know, the, the screen flipped with you. And that's because accelerometers in the phone are sensing that motion. And so it's similar sensors that you can put on these animals to try and understand what they're doing, essentially. So the, the earlier work and much of Rory's work, for example, is with uh, seabirds uh, and then also marine mammals and turtles. And in the last 
10 years or so, we've been using them with sharks. Uh, and so my, one of my interests is, is with using these sorts of sensors with white sharks in Guadalupe to try and answer questions to understand why these animals are aggregating in this area. We still don't fully understand why white sharks form these aggregations at these offshore islands, for example, and what sort of tactics they use to hunt their prey. If you compare, for example, white shark behavior in South Africa with white shark behavior in, in Mexico or Guadalupe, it's very different. You don't see these uh, impressive surface breaches that you see in South Africa where they launch themselves out of the water trying to take a seal or sea lion on the surface. You don't see that. Mm. They eat the same prey, um, but they're having to use different foraging tactics in order to catch their prey. And so sensors like the ones that, that um, Rory and other people have developed uh, help us to understand what those tactics are. Well, wow, that's interesting. Um, I was reading about the Guadalupe Island. Um, isn't that one of like the largest congregations of great whites? Yeah, it's, it, it has a, a large number of, of individuals. We don't know exactly how many. I, I mean, I think I saw an early estimate, and this was probably over 10 years ago, of about 100 animals. Uh, probably it, it's more than that. Um, but it's one of the premier spots to go and see white sharks. One of the things that stands out with Guadalupe is that it has very clear water. And that's one big difference with what you see in South Africa, for example, where it tends to be murky green water. Mm-hmm. Guadalupe is you know, beautiful, clear uh, blue water where you can see 60, sometimes 100 feet. Uh, and that probably also explains why the shark's behavior is, is very different because they don't really have the ability to ambush on the surface nearly as well as they would in somewhere South Africa where they're hard to see. If you're on the surface looking down, it's much harder to see an animal stalking you if it's murky green. When it's clear blue water, if you're a seal, for example, on the surface, you can see that shark from quite a way down. So, so they're presumably having to use different tactics. Yeah, that makes complete sense. What, what are some other interesting discoveries you have made from your research? Well, I'll start off by saying that white sharks are just one of the species I study. I study many, many uh, different species of sharks and other predators as well. Um, so we've you know, made quite a few discoveries with uh, different uh, species of sharks. Um, what we're really interested in with white sharks in Mexico is, again, looking at how they uh, hunt their prey. And what we're really starting to see are examples of how there may not be one sort of set rule that different individuals can do different things. And we like to think of the sort of neat story where we can describe animal behavior in, in one or two sentences, like all sharks hunt at night or all sharks hunt during the day. And, and that may not be the case. It may be that there are different tactics that different individuals can use. Okay, I see. So um, would you say that they, great whites are, maybe the most dangerous shark predator or would maybe tiger sharks or another kind of shark or bull shark be more dangerous? I don't necessarily like to, to classify them in terms of who's more dangerous because mm-hmm. it's, it's a tough, you know, what, what does that, what constitutes dangerous? I mean, they're the biggest one. They are the biggest one. Food marine mammals in their diet. So other animals are, are the same size or bigger than us are in their diet. And even a small nibble, an, investiga- you know, an investigation from a shark, white shark that's just a small nibble, could be fatal to a human. So they're definitely up there, but whether you can separate them from being more dangerous than tiger sharks or bull sharks it is you know, 
difficult to say. I mean, we definitely consider some sharks to be more temperamental than others. And I think you do start to see that in terms of some of their behavior, but also within different individuals. So even within white sharks, there's certain white sharks that I would definitely not get in the water with because I can see how they're behaving and they're just being very aggressive. And I'm not getting in the water with that, that animal. And there's other white sharks that are very, very uh, calm and complacent around you. So you'll see, again, individual differences in behavior, even within that species. Mm-hmm. You know, you read about great white sharks and other sharks, and, and I've read data that say, okay, they're loners. You know, they're, they're always just hunting alone. I mean, or they're merciless. Or, um, but aren't they a lot smarter? And have, they, have you noticed behavior that sort of goes against kind of the common thoughts about sharks? Well, I'd say uh, being a loner doesn't have anything to do with uh, how smart you are. So there's lots of animals that are solitary. Uh, you know, polar bears can be very solitary, for example, and they're uh, you know highly evolved mammals. So it, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, smart equals social, and and loner is is less smart. But one of the problems we have with sharks is it's, it's actually very hard to study their social lives. And thanks to some of the technological advancements we have now, we're starting to look at that in a bit more depth. And that's one of the things that I'm interested in and starting to see that perhaps they're not as much loners as we thought they were, that there may be uh, some degree of sort of social associations between white sharks with at least during certain times of the year, perhaps when they're in within these sort of aggregations. So it's still one of the, I would say, major mysteries that we don't really know that much about for this species. Mm-hmm. So if you had to think forward about what you would love to discover, I mean, you're talking about more of their social lives, what, what are some things you'd really like to learn about them? The social lives of, of white sharks, uh, and um, including great whites and other species, is really an area I'm very interested in, uh, and why some sharks form groups, for example, uh, and why others don't. So I would really love to be able to learn more about uh, their social lives. And if that does exist, then why? Why would they form social bonds, for example, with, with other individuals? I would love to learn more and understand more about their hunting behavior. I mean, when I say hunting behavior, I know everyone will, will think of, again, white sharks ambushing seals on the surface. And that's just one tactic. So we have to remember that the reason we know about that tactic is because it takes place on the surface where you can see it. But most white shark hunting will still take place underwater where we can't see it. We don't witness it. So we know much, much less about it. So I really hope to understand more about how these animals catch their prey, what sort of tactics they use and uh, how that might vary. What causes their tactics to change, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd love to know that. That's fascinating. What about in terms of their mating ritual do you feel like we know a lot about that or is there still a lot to learn when it comes to choosing a mate and where they mate i mean already you talked about the shallow water with the pups but the whole mating process we know very very little about white shark mating because as far as i know no one's ever witnessed it and so all we're left with are clues for example uh shark mating can be pretty violent and it involves the males biting the females so one of the ways you can tell uh, if someone has at least attempted to mate with a female, is that it should be covered in bites. Um, but it's just those clues are kind of all we have in terms of understanding, not necessarily just how they mate, but where they mate. That's a really important question, is, is where does mating take place? Uh, how do individual sharks 
find each other? Are they mating at these aggregation sites, these islands, or are they mating at some uh, offshore sites? And that's still, uh, there's still pretty active debate in trying to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I remember Rory telling me that they wanted to know where they gave, uh, whale sharks gave birth, and they figured that it must be so deep that they can't find the answer to that. Yeah, and, and I'm not an expert on whale sharks. I, I know there are a few places where they have said they have found um, whale shark nurseries, at least in the sense that you can find juvenile animals, maybe not newborn. Um, so I'm not entirely sure what the current thought is in terms of where, where whale sharks are born. But I would say that for a lot of species, those are unknown questions. We have a better handling for a lot of coastal species. We, we mm -hmm. have a better understanding of where these nursery sites are, or at least where individuals are being born. But for a lot of the other more wide-ranging species, the offshore species, for example, that, that's still a mystery. Fascinating. How long do great whites live? Um, again, the, you know, the, the estimate uh, changes uh, based on you know advancements in the methods we have, and I'm not entirely sure. I believe the the original estimate was about 30 years, but that there was a more recent one that was uh, suggesting they get much older than that. But to be honest, I'd have to go back and and check and see what the most recent estimate is. Mm -hmm. That's that's interesting too. So um, at Florida International University, you have do you have a lab there that you all work out of? I do. So I, I, I have a lab. Um, I have uh, five graduate students, uh, PhD students, uh, and then also uh, a few undergraduates who, who work in my lab. And so my students and I work with, again, a variety of different species and, and also kind of all over the world. And so in the lab, do you look at things like genetics or do you look at how you're tagging them or do you look at um, isotopes or like what, what sorts of things do you or videos you've taken or like what what sort of tools do you use to really kind of hone in on some of the answers you're seeking so again in my lab we use a lot of uh, electronic tags as i was uh, discussing we have the various sorts of uh, sensors we put on animals we also do a lot of tracking still we use video cameras so we attach cameras to the animals to try and understand uh you know how do you do that how do you how do you attach a camera to a great white well, with great whites, we have to uh, attach the tags to their dorsal fin as they swim past. So we can sometimes do that from the cage. So you have a diver in the cage and you, you basically clamp the tag on as a shark swims past. And that's also one of the things we do when we're outside the cage. So we have free divers who can essentially free dive down on the white shark as it's swimming past and attach by this sort of clamp uh, the camera to the dorsal fin. And so we obviously keep all these sorts of tags in, in the lab. We do do stable isotopes, which are essentially when we analyze uh, different tissues such as muscle or skin or, or fin, which we take from sharks or stingrays or other fish, and we can use that muscle to look for compounds or chemicals called stable isotopes, which tell us something about the diet and the feeding behavior, what those animals are eating. Um, I don't do genetics, but I actually share a lab with my, my colleague, Dr. Daniel Chapman, and he does do a lot of genetics. And in fact, he works on the shark fin trade, particularly out of Hong Kong, and actually using genetics to identify what species uh, those fins are from. So this may not be a question you actually want to answer, but on your expeditions and your research, during your research when you're actually with the sharks, has anyone ever been attacked with your group? 
No one's ever been attacked. I've been uh, bitten, not by a white shark, <laughs> by, oh. by other sharks, uh, but those were always during tagging, always with sharks that we had caught and were tagging and before being released. Um, so I've, I've had a couple of bites during the tagging process, but as far as attacks in the water, no, I've, I've never uh, had one. I've never seen anybody uh, get attacked. That's very comforting. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I'll, you know, I'll be honest, we, when uh, you give these statistics and, and no matter how much you convey the low risk, people are still going to be nervous. It's just not mm -hmm. going to stay. It's like if you're nervous flying, someone telling you the chance of dying in a plane crash is very low doesn't make you less nervous. Uh, I'm scared of flying, so that's why I bring that up. Well, me too. And I, I, I'm one of those quiet white knuckle people. <laughs> I am too. I am too. And yet I fly a lot for work and, and every time I get in the plane, I'm terrified. And, and I know how low the probability is, but that doesn't change the fact. And I'm sure it's the same with, with people who are scared of sharks. Yeah. Um, all I can do at this point is just sort of try and reiterate though, how low that chance of attack is and how low that chance of a bite is. Because there's no doubt that the number of interactions in terms of sharks swimming around humans, when the human has no idea that, that shark is there, are very, very high. In certain areas, there can be a lot of sharks in the water. Uh, there's a lot of humans in the water. So we don't consider these sort of interactions where there is no major event. In other words, you don't get someone getting bitten. And so obviously you don't, you're not aware there was a shark there, but I can guarantee there are sharks there. They've passed close to you. They're not interested. Um, and, and that's just ultimately why the, uh, the chance of an interaction is so low. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Giannis, if you had to um, talk a little bit about your goals with conservation, what would be your ideal scenario there? I mean, I'm sure you're, you're looking at that, you know, it's exciting to hear that the population of great whites, for example, is increasing. Um, how do you see the conservation efforts going and what would you like to see? Well, when, you know, when I first of all, when I said, you know, that, that white shark populations may be increasing, that may be true in some areas, doesn't necessarily mean that globally they are. So mm -hmm. there are other areas where they may be doing quite badly. Uh, and I think, though, it raises an important point that for conservation, we have to uh, take an approach and, and realize that not all species are equal. There are some species that are doing very badly and drastically need help before they go uh, get wiped out. But there are other species that are doing just fine. So we don't want to just use blanket statements such as all sharks are in danger, because that's not true. Some are and, and a lot are not. <laughs> in fact, most are probably not. Uh, some are of concern and others are doing pretty well. So we have to really focus our efforts because at the end of the day, conservation costs money. There's no way, two ways about that. It costs money. So you want to put those resources towards those species that really need it. And so that's, it, it's a really important point to note what are the, which other species that need uh, need that support need that help and that's really where we need to focus uh, our efforts. Mm -hmm. So, if listeners wanted to help, let's say with your shark project in Guadalupe Island and your research there, is there a way that people could help with that? Um, I, I would imagine these tags are expensive. You know they are, and we we do often rely on, for example, donors who who help support the research. Um, at the moment, we don't have anything set up where uh, sort of, uh, you know, people interested can go and, and donate. Uh, we may do that in the future. I think it, it's important 
for those that are interested in helping out in that way and making contributions that uh, you, know, you, you do your homework before you uh, decide who to donate to because there may be certain you know, groups out there that may mean well um, but aren't really doing a great deal for conservation. So from if you're trying to support science, for example, just make sure that uh, you know, they're coming from the, the, the research group seems reputable um, and uh, you know, can, can be sort of verified or validated. Uh, and it may not just be for science, but also for conservation groups. I think this is an issue with donations, no matter what you're donating to, no matter what area that, you know, not, not all um, charities. Are <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the same thing with, with charities. I mean, you, we see sure. more examples of charities that turn out to not be reputable and people give their money to them. Uh, so it, it's just important to do your homework first. What about in terms of um, getting in touch with policymakers or um that's i mean i'm i'm i have some interaction with with uh policy and i guess again it's important to keep your ears open for examples where policy are asking for public opinion so for example NOAA or state uh, legislation or state groups because they do ask for public opinion on matters and they hold hearings that require public opinion so i think it's important to keep your ears open to those events where you can contribute and give your opinion and let them know what you think. You know, be wary about signing petitions, for example. Not that it's necessarily bad, but uh, you know, I see petitions popping up all the time and most of them will do nothing. <laughs> it doesn't matter how many people will sign them. That's not going to do anything. There are some cases where, again, when they're called for by, let's say some of the government sources call for, for a petition, um, and it may be valid, but a lot of times this is just not going to do anything. Yeah. Um, it seems like the public is more supportive of protecting sharks. I know that's just the feeling I get in the things I read that people are, are becoming a little less. I mean, of course, like you say, you always be nervous if just like you might be a nervous flyer, but it just seems with everything I've read that people are becoming more supportive of protecting sharks. Much, much more so. I mean, I would say that scientists have known that shark populations uh, or some shark populations have been in trouble for a long time, but not a great deal was getting done because there wasn't really any public support for protecting them. If you look into the 90s and you may remember with, for example, when, when the public was first aware that dolphins were being killed in tuna nets, there was mass outrage. Mm -hmm. uh, the public liked dolphins. And so that sort of public support for those conservation efforts made a huge difference. And you're now starting to see, I think, something similar with sharks in that there is much greater public support. And one of the things I've realized uh, as a scientist is that conservation is definitely not just about science. I, I take a scientific view to it, of course, but at the end of the day, if you don't have public support, it's, it's very hard to get things done mm -hmm. because if no one cares, then, uh, it's difficult to, to drive things forward. So I think having that public support is very important. And uh, I definitely see, even in the last 10, 20 years, a huge change in the amount of public support for sharks. Oh, I love that. That, that was just my gut feeling. I'm glad to hear that. Um, it's funny when you talked about dolphins, that act absolutely outraged me as well. And I went to undergrad at UC Santa Barbara. And I started out um, majoring in marine biology because I wanted to teach dolphins how to talk. And <laughs> the funny thing is where Jaws had an impression on you, that movie Dave the Dolphin had an impression on me. <laughs> so. I, I, haven't, I haven't seen that film. <laughs> you know, there's always, there can be one good film can make a really big difference. 
can be true for a lot of things. It's so funny, but I changed to um, journalism and sociology. So, um, cause I realized I wasn't very good at chemistry, but, um, my last question for you, Giannis is, have you ever thought about at some point in time, putting all of your experiences together into a book, a story, a novel, um, something where you can share, like you've already told a couple episodes that have happened and the tagging and being in the water with a shark. I think people would be fascinated by that. You know, I have thought about it. Uh, the, the only problem is that I think I would be a, terrible writer <laughs> you can always have someone write it for you <laughs> that's what it would need because obviously you know having stories to tell and being able to tell them are two different things um, and so i can write scientific papers but i, I don't think writing uh non-scientific books for example would necessarily be my strong point but if i could find somebody who would you know could write it and thought i had interesting stories to tell then you know the thought has crossed my mind that's great. Well, you never know. We have a lot of listeners that are artists <laughs> and uh, artistic, have a lot of artistic endeavors. So yeah. <laughs> maybe one day. Maybe one day. Well, thank you so much for being on the Masogi Method. I love what you're doing. I have an even greater respect for sharks than I have ever. And I've always been fascinated by them. And I love what you're doing and other scientists like you. And I'm a big, big fan of conservation and increasing the shark population and any endangered species population. So I wanted to thank you for all you do and for being on the Masogi Method. And I wish you so much success and I'm going to be following you. And I hope for just great strides throughout your career going forward. Well, I really, I really appreciate that. And thank you very much for having me. And, you know, I think I'll just end with, I hope uh, if nothing else, people can appreciate just uh, what fascinating uh, animals uh, sharks are. Uh, they should be respected, but at the end of the day, they're, they're, they're fascinating animals, and uh, there'll never be a time when I don't have new things to learn about them. And uh, you know that that'll that'll last till the day I die. <laughs> so I yeah, love, I love it that I get to work with them. And then one last final question, Giannis. Um, in terms of reading some of your publications and some of the papers you've written, are there any particular journals that we could guide our listeners to where they can actually read some of your research? But if you do a search for predator ecology and conservation at uh, Florida International University, my lab website, which again, I, I share the lab with, with Damien Chapman, but on there you can find everything we've ever published. Great. Then I will put that link on when I do the overview of your background on Masogi Radio, which links to the podcast on iTunes. I always put um, a picture. And if it's okay with you, I'll grab a photo or two from, from that site. And, yeah, um, of course. I'll put it on there. And again, thank you so much. I'm, I'm just a huge fan, a big supporter. And I know that you will inspire many people listening to you today on the Masogi Method. So thank you again for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And for all our listeners, thank you so much for being here on the Masogi Method. I'm your host, Jody B. Miller, and we'll see you next time. Right now, you can get both Sprint's unlimited plan and the all-new Samsung Galaxy S10 included for just $35 per month per line for five lines. All you need is approved credit and an 18-month lease. No trade-in required. Visit a Sprint store, Sprint.com, or call 800-SPRINT-1. Phone $15 a month after $22.50 a month credit. Apply within two bills. If canceled earlier, remain a balance due unlimited basic. After 630 20 pay $32 per month per line for five lines with auto pay. Data deprioritization during congestion. Speed maximums. Use rules and restrictions apply. And now, an ad from Mom. <clears throat> Save money on your car insurance by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Hey, is it always this cold in here? 
it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me a bit. I just just kind of curious because uh, if it's the equipment or something, that that's fine. It's just woo. It's kind of chilly. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.